Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I will tell you why I now feel sorry for Kawhi Leonard. I will tell you why Anthony Davis has become the all-time, all-time, damned if you do or damned if you don't player. I will tell you why from a distance. I just don't trust Taylor Swift. Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 89, in honor of the baddest tight end ever there was, Mike Ditka, one of the craziest coaches, crazy great ever there was. My first year in Dallas, Texas, as the columnist at the Dallas Morning News. We got to March. I wanted to try to play golf. We went out one Monday afternoon to play golf with what was called then a Norther, Blue Norther, Blue Through. The temperature dropped 30 degrees in five minutes. It was just too cold and windy to try to play our first round of golf that spring. So we adjourned to the golf course restaurant overlooking the golf course, and we looked up the fairway we could see, which was the ninth fairway. And here came a solitary golfer still playing out in the cold and the wind. And I looked and I looked harder and I realized it was an assistant coach for the Dallas Cowboys, a guy named Mike Ditka. I said, it had to be Ditka. He's crazy enough to play out in that weather. And of course, Mike Ditka finished number nine. And we thought, maybe we'll see him up here in the restaurant in five minutes. Nope, he turned and went to 10 by himself in the cold and the wind. That was Ditka. This, as always, is the unundisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour debate show that is undisputed. Today, episode 89, I will tell you why I finally and weirdly, almost inexplicably, have a good feeling about Dak Prescott. I will tell you, I will share with you my Thanksgiving Day eating rules. Whether you want to hear them or not, I will share them. I will tell you why I now feel sorry for Kawhi Leonard. 
I will tell you why Anthony Davis has become the all-time, all-time damned if you do or damned if you don't player. I will tell you why I'm actually a bigger fan of the Sooners than I am of the Cowboys. I will explain. I will tell you why from a distance. I just don't trust Taylor Swift. And finally, I'll tell you what number I would choose to wear on a customized jersey made just for me to wear. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. So, yeah, as you probably know, I did throw my number four Dak jersey into the trash after the San Francisco debacle. And I left it in that trash to be taken out. I don't have a number four jersey anymore in my household. As I've said, even this week on Undisputed, when Dak's name begins to pop up, bandwagon begins to roll for Dak being MVP, at least being in the conversation for, I say, nope, nope, nope. Disqualified in my book because of what he did or didn't do at Arizona, at San Francisco, at Philadelphia in the fourth quarter. Where, as you know, my Cowboys went up and down the field, 14 first downs they made just in the fourth quarter alone to zero for Philadelphia, 14 to zero, up and down the field and still lost, 28 to 23 in largest part because my quarterback couldn't make one play, just one play, somehow, some way, one play. In part because my quarterback stepped out of bounds when it looked like he could waltz into the end zone on a two-point try that would have at least set up a last-second field goal to force overtime. But despite all of the above, I'm also here to tell you right here, right now, that I weirdly, shockingly, I don't know, maybe wrongly, feel better than I have about Dak Prescott since his rookie year when I fell in football love with Dak Prescott out of Mississippi State in the fourth round of the draft. Dak led that team, 2016 team, to a 13-3 and record and a number one overall seed with a lot of help from his new friend, the first-round pick, Ezekiel Elliott. But Dak was Offensive Rookie of the Year, and Dak did deserve it, even though I underestimated, underrated just how important and valuable Zeke was to Dak. For that matter, Now that I'm just speaking my heart and declaring myself publicly, I'm actually starting to believe, I hate to jinx myself and say it, but I'm actually starting to believe in Mike McCarthy as the new play caller for my Dallas Cowboys. It is now, believe it or not, become the Dak and Mac attack. The Dak and Mac attack. 
featuring a quarterback and a head coach that for the most part, I don't trust. At least past tense, haven't trusted. But I believe that Dak has come to trust Mike McCarthy. Did you see the quote after the Giants game the other day, other evening? Dak said that he feels more free and more connected in this offense than he has in any of his eight seasons with the Dallas Cowboys. You say that's a contradiction in terms, free and connected. No, he's saying that he's finally found his ultimate comfort zone of plays called and players executing those plays around him free because he feels so connected makes sense to me i loved hearing that quote of the year so far from dak prescott but now we come we arrive crashing headlong into the question facing the 2023 dallas cowboys they are 6-3 and three without having beaten a single team with a winning record. So, question. Are they in truth just front-running frauds who bully bad teams but get bullied by good ones, such as San Francisco and Philadelphia? My answer to that question is no, 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 no. My Dallas Cowboys are going to go to Carolina and beat up on Carolina. Then they are at least going to beat Washington on Thanksgiving Day at Jerry World. Then at home, they are going to beat Seattle and beat Philadelphia. Remember, at home, because they have now won 13 straight games at home You ready for this? By an average score of 36 to 18. 36 to 18 over 13 straight home wins. That is extraordinary. That is legit. That is real. That you can take to your NFL bank. After the Philadelphia home game, which my team will win, Dak and company have opportunities to go make statements at Buffalo, at Miami, and finally at Washington. They have another great opportunity to make a home statement against the surging have-arrived Detroit Lions. It's a tough closing schedule, but I love it because I love the opportunity to show on Undisputed, Keyshawn Johnson, Richard Sherman, that we are not fraudulent. Even the blindest cowboy hater out there would have to admit that my team has shown it is capable of winning every game left on its schedule, all eight. I'm not saying they will win all eight because they almost certainly will not. 
but they are very capable of winning out because they are that good. This is the most explosive team in the National Football League on both sides of the ball. I'll throw in the special teams. This is a triple threat of explosive football, the likes of which nobody in this league can equal. No team can equal the triple threat explosiveness of my Dallas Cowboys. I want you to think about this. Nope, they haven't beaten a winning team yet, but five of their six wins are by an average score of 40 to 10. This is the National Football League. It's not the Pac-12. It's just not that easy to beat five teams in a nine-game span by 40 to 10 on average. 40 to 10. It's hard to beat the Giants. 40 to nothing on opening night up at the Giants when they're coming off a playoff season in which they won a playoff game. It's hard to beat the Giants in the return game 49-17 to this past Sunday. It's hard to beat the Jets in week two in their top five defense, 30-10. to It's just hard. It's hard to beat a Bill Belichick coached defense, 38-3. to It's just hard. It's hard to outscore the extremely explosive Los Angeles Rams, 43 to 20, 43 to 20. It's just hard to do. My team just keeps flexing the most firepower in the NFL on both sides of the ball and on the special, special teams. Okay, so Sunday was, as I keep hearing from Keyshawn Johnson, it's just the Giants. It's just the Giants. Trust me, 640 yards to 172 for the Giants is just hard to do. Dak, 404 yards passing, four touchdown passes, another rushing touchdown. It's hard to do against the worst National Football League team. I'm sorry, maybe I'm overreacting, but I am speaking from the bottom of my soul. You know I'm hard on Dak, maybe too hard on Dak, the crazed cowboy fan that I've been since I was 10 years of age. But I truly liked the way he operated on Sunday, albeit against the Giants. I liked his body language. I liked his swagger. I liked his aura. He came across as supremely confident and even more important, happy. Dak just looked happy on Sunday, happy in the new offense. Orchestrated by Mike McCarthy. This is his eighth season. He appears to me to be at the peak of his powers, in the heart of his prime. And he's finally figured out that 
he has at his fingertips an unguardable top five receiver in C.D. Lamb. C.D. baby, as I often tweet. I cannot tell you how difficult it was to hang in on Undisputed against a Keyshawn Johnson, who once upon a time was the first overall pick in the draft as a receiver. I can't tell you how hard it was to hang in on Undisputed against a Richard Sherman, one of the best cornerbacks in NFL history. Top 10 cornerback. He can make a case for top five, top three. Richard Sherman and Keyshawn Johnson went after me show after show. All I heard from both of them all the way through the San Francisco game, that disaster of a debacle, was Richard saying, CD's a fringy number one, not really a number one. He's just sort of on the edge of being a true number one receiver. And Keyshawn doing this, there's just something missing. I heard it again and again. Fringy number one, just something missing. I fought back. I dug in. I could have looked like an all-time fool, but I said, no, no, no. You guys don't get it. He is a legit number one and a top five receiver. And ever since San Francisco, ever since he did complain publicly, and Mike McCarthy applauded his public complaint by saying, I wouldn't want it any other way. I don't want a receiver who doesn't want the football. They fed the beast that is C.D. Lamb. He broke a record the other day, an NFL record over a three-game stretch, three straight games of 10-plus catches, three straight games of 150-plus receiving yards. Nobody had ever done that before. C.D. did. Then I look up during Sunday's game, and I see this kid, Jalen Brooks, seventh-round pick. I, I didn't even know who he was. Greg Olson on the telecast, the Fox telecast, is saying we, we didn't know who he was. We were watching him pregame warm-ups. He just looked so explosive. We asked the PR guys, who is that? Jalen Brooks. Finally got a little run on Sunday, and I said, that kid can play long and strong. Huh. I used to love Martavis Bryant when he was a Pittsburgh Steeler. He had his issues, substance abuse, we all know. He's been out for five years. We all get it. He's on the practice squad, and both Keyshawn and my man Michael Irvin, they think he can still play. Hope so. All of a sudden, we're starting to look deep at receiver when at the trade deadline, we didn't add a receiver and looked a little scary shallow. Our run game. It's been a little sketchy. But all of a sudden, I started to see a little more pop from Tony Pollard on Sunday, albeit against the Giants, and Rico Dowdle can pound the rock. Right now, Rico Dowdle is better than Zeke. Right now. Right now. Not, not the Zeke of yore. Not the Zeke of 2016, 17, and 18. Rico Dowdle. He packs more of a wallop right now than Zeke does for the New England Patriots. My run game is starting to look pretty potent. My Dallas Cowboys are second in the NFL in scoring. 30 a game to Miami's 32. Miami, the most prolific offense, the most explosive offense ever. Huh? They're 32, we're 30. But we haven't played anybody. All year, I have said again and again, 
going back to the summertime. My team will go as far this year as my oh Micah, 11 from heaven, Micah Parsons, and my defense carries said team. Said it again and again. By the way, my defense right now is fourth in points allowed, which is pretty great considering you gave up 42 at San Francisco and 28 at Arizona and 28 at Philadelphia. But you're still fourth in points allowed. Pretty great. But now I've got to amend the statement I've made again and again. I'm now to the point where I believe with all my cowboy loving heart and soul that my Dallas Cowboys will go as far as Micah's defense and the Dak and Mac attack carry us. Which very well could be all the way to a Super Bowl. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. First question is from Mo from Chatsworth out here in Southern California in the LA area. Do you carve the turkey for Thanksgiving? Asked Mo from Chatsworth. Mo, I do not. We always eat out. I have never been a big Thanksgiving guy. Never been that big on Thanksgiving, as they say, dinner or lunch or breakfast, whatever it is. I usually have Thanksgiving brunch out here in Southern California because we do have a show on Thursday morning, Thanksgiving morning. And so in between the end of show and the start of NFL, usually my wife Ernestine, her sister Joyce, and I just go out and grab, quote-unquote, Thanksgiving, whatever you want to call it, brunch. We order turkey if they haven't ready yet, and we usually call ahead so that they do. But my family never really celebrated Thanksgiving to much of a degree when I was a kid. And even though I certainly have nothing against Thanksgiving, it's always seemed like kind of a weird holiday. So it started, obviously, because the pilgrims wanted to celebrate and literally give thanks for the new life they were making in the new world. I got it. Great. But the only reason for the day is pretty much to eat, obviously fellowship with your family, friends, but but the only reason for being is to eat or overeat. You don't give gifts on Thanksgiving, as you do on Christmas, obviously. You don't go to parties on Thanksgiving the way you would on New Year's. 
you just eat and then you watch the Cowboys, right? Isn't that America's tradition? For me, as I began to grow up, I began to realize it could be a real threatening day because it's National Overeating Day. It's, it's actually National Gluttony Day for many because you can pretty much get drunk on food on Thanksgiving Day. Certainly get your fill of tryptophan, which puts a lot of people to sleep during the Cowboy game. And I hope this time people are falling asleep because the Cowboys are way ahead, not way behind. But if you would allow me, if you would suffer me, the stick in the mud that I can be, I'm going to impart to you my cautionary tale and my Thanksgiving Day eating rules, which should apply year-round, if you so choose. So I first learned my lesson back in my days in Dallas. I would always get up early on Thanksgiving morning. There would always be a Cowboy game at home in the afternoon, obviously, but I would get up early to run a race called the Turkey Trot in downtown Dallas. Loved it. Always my best of the races. I ran a lot of marathons, half marathons. This is an eight-mile race. It's always pretty to very cold in Dallas, especially early in the morning on Thanksgiving Day. It's a great day to run, great temperature to run in. So I would run the turkey trot, love the course, fit me, fit my eye, fit my legs, not too hilly, fast course. I had some of my best road race times on that course. And then guess what I would do, ladies and gentlemen? Because I so feared how much I might eat on Thanksgiving Day, I would go straight home from running my guts out for eight miles, and I would get on my exercise bike for another hour. It's called exercise bulimia, where you're trying to run to eat instead of eat to run. You're you're actually trying to, instead of actually trying to vomit up your food, you're trying to, to preface all that you might eat with burning so many calories that you can eat. But trust me, you, you can't do enough exercise to offset the, the caloric intake of the usual Thanksgiving Day meal. It's just impossible. So I would realize that I would then, back in my days in Dallas, go pig out, just eat without a plan, eat what my eyes saw. You want more? You want another? You want a third? You want a fourth helping? Yep, yep, yep. And it never made me happy to eat that much. So I learned over time, you have to have a plan on Thanksgiving Day. If you want to do two servings of turkey, plan it out. I'm going to have two servings of turkey and I'm going to stop. If you want to have two servings of dressing, great, stop. Two cranberry sauce, great, stop. Whatever else, all your side dishes that you might love, even macaroni and cheese, whatever you love, maybe two helpings and stop. You like pumpkin pie? Two pieces and stop. If you go in with a plan, I think when it's over, you'll feel a lot better about yourself. I think you'll respect yourself more. 
I think you'll you'll be happier on Thanksgiving night. I think your clothes will like you more. And I capped this off with speaking of eating plans. I'll give you an example of how I really got thrown a food curveball just the other day. We shot a commercial, which I hope will air on Thanksgiving Day for Undisputed. It was a long day, Saturday shoot. I actually ordered ahead and said, I need this, 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 and this to get me through a long day. And the great people here at FS1 provided exactly what I asked for. So I had a plan of what I was going to eat, but I did not realize this long day was catered five-star. And every time I turned around, there was more food being offered to me on on platters being carried around to the crew and the talent. Michael Irvin was there. Keyshawn was there. It was quite a production. Take after take after take. And you're a little nervous. You're a little jittery. And it's easy to nervous eat. But I had my plan. And even though I got thrown the food curveball, I said no to everything that was offered to me, every single thing. And I felt so proud of myself as I drove home that night because I avoided all the pitfalls I used to fall right into. Because in the bad old days, my exercise bulimia days, if you offered, I'd say, yeah, I ran this morning. Yeah. And I did. I ran that morning, ran on my treadmill for a hour, ran pretty well, pretty hard. So I could maybe quote unquote, get away with it. Not with that. I I was getting offered things. I would never think about eating, but it was free and it was right there. And I was worn out, a little nervous about what was going on. So no, no, just my two cents stick in the mud that I am. Just have a plan, and you'll be much happier. This is Dominic from New York. Would you rather be a quarterback in the Hall of Fame or a quarterback who has won a Super Bowl but is not in the Hall of Fame? That is a smart question. So you're asking me, Dominic, Would I rather be Dan Marino or Eli Manning? Dan Marino, to me, was the greatest thrower of the football ever, even beyond Aaron Bleepin' Rodgers. Dan Marino is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Dan Marino played in one Super Bowl, unfortunately, up against Joe Montana. And he lost pretty badly. Forgot to look up the score, but I was there that day at Stanford Stadium, believe it or not, in Palo Alto, out on the farm. Seemed like it was 38 to 16. Don't hold me to that. But he lost convincingly, did Dan Marino, to the second best quarterback ever to me, Joe Montana. 
no real shame in that, but no Super Bowl rings. So would I rather be Dan Marino or Eli? I'd rather be Eli. Eli Manning is not a Hall of Famer. Eli Manning led the National Football League in interceptions, not once or twice, three times. Eli played 16 years and made four Pro Bowls. Not bad, but four out of 16. Meh. His overall regular season record, Eli Manning, this is Eli Manning, was 117 and 117. He was a 500 quarterback. But guess what? Eli was eight and four in the postseason. Eli twice beat the greatest quarterback ever. You know who that is. In Super Bowls, twice Eli Manning was the Super Bowl MVP. Two and O in Super Bowls. While having a record, excuse me, a regular season record of 366 touchdown passes to 244 interceptions, that is extremely high on the interception side. So one of the all-time worst interception throwers beat Tom Brady twice in the Super Bowl and was the Super Bowl MVP. Give me some of that. I'll take that over Dan Marino. I just will. I'll take that. That's everlasting glory. For that matter, I'll take Joe Flacco over Joe Mon- over. Excuse me, uh, Dan Marino. I'll take Joe Flacco over Dan Marino. Joe Flacco, as Bill Parcells used to say, he was just a jag, just another guy in the regular season. His record was okay because he played for some really good Baltimore teams, as you know. 99 and 81 as a starting quarterback. Did he make a Pro Bowl? None. Zero. 15 years Flacco played. I think he's still a free agent, open to playing for somebody right now. But he played for 15 years, and he made zero Pro Bowls. Zero. He will not be in the Hall of Fame. But his postseason belongs in the Hall of Fame. Maybe in a special wing, just those numbers alone. My God. Joe Flacco in the postseason, 10 and 5 record in the postseason. 25 touchdowns to 10 interceptions. 25 to 10 in the postseason. And he swept through in 2012 with 11 touchdowns to zero interceptions and won the Super Bowl. And he was the Super Bowl MVP. So, Think about this. Eli Manning and Joe Flacco combined to go to three Super Bowls and combined to win three MVPs. Huh? Neither Super Bowl worthy, but their postseasons? Yep. So when I look at the Hall of Fame and I see Fran Tarkin in the Hall of Fame, this is probably before your time, but he could, you want to talk about the all-time escape artist? Fran Tarkenden did not win a Super Bowl, but he at least played in three. That's pretty great. Jim Kelly, Hall of Fame, didn't win a Super Bowl, but he played in four. I'll take that. 
the only other Hall of Famer who didn't win, win at all, was Dan Fouts, as prolific a passer as ever there was. Dan never played in a Super Bowl. So, so that's another guy we're all like between the two Dans, Dan Marino and Dan Fouts. I, give me Eli and give me the guy in the regular season. I always call Joe Fluco. This is Ty from L.A. Are you still a fan of Kawhi as in Leonard? Yes, I am. He's a longtime Spurs fan. A Duncan Ginobili Parker fan. I have forgiven Kawhi for what he did to those three and my Spurs, but I won't forget. But I have forgiven. He quit his way out of San Antonio. I give him a slight break because he quit on a Popovich, as in Greg, who I tend to quit on just because for so long he bullied media people and it was just shameful how he treated the people in my profession. And I just got worn out of it. And Pop once said, when Tim Duncan walks out that door, I'll be walking right behind him. And that was a long time ago. And now he has his next potential, Timmy, in Wimby. We'll see how that turns out. But I, I've given Kawhi a little break past tense, in hindsight, in retrospect, because he got sick of pop too. But I still think he exaggerated some kind of quad injury. I don't know what it was, to the point Tony Parker, who ruptured his quadriceps, ruptured that tendon. In the end, Tony told the media what I went through with my quad was a hundred times worse than what Kawhi is going through. Kawhi quit his way out of San Antonio. Had to stop layover in Toronto on his way to LA, where he's from, to play ultimately, as you know, for the Clippers. He got one of the greatest, luckiest breaks ever. First, he made a shot against Philadelphia that was the luckiest playoff shot I have ever seen. Bounced around 16 times and fell through on a shot on a corner three. I don't know how it fell through, but it did. He was living right in that finals. There was no KD. KD tried to come back on his bad calf, ruptured his Achilles. Clay Thompson blew out his knee, as you recall, late in that series, and Kawhi broke through. It's hard to feel sorry for Kawhi because if he finishes this contract, if he stays with the Clippers next year, he's got one more year at his option, he will have made $325 million as an NBA player. That's pretty great. But I do feel sorry for him. He's got creaky knees, arthritic knees, multiple surgeries, never quite right. So far, so good this year. Trust me, because I know a lot of people around Kawhi. I'm close with people who are close with him. Nobody works harder. He doesn't publicize it. He's not a social media button pusher. No, he he just quietly behind the scenes works and works and works harder. It's 
trying to keep his knees just barely above water where he can make it through without, speaking of water, swelling. Make it through this year, make it into the postseason at maybe 80%. But I feel sorry for him because he's now stuck on a team with three other quote-unquote superstars I don't trust. I'm sorry, I just don't. Let's start with Russell Westbrook, the most athletic point guard ever. Plays with the highest energy of maybe any player I can ever remember. But in the end, Russ is a solo act of a stat machine that just can't help himself. He's more interested in starring than winning. He does not have what I call winner's intangibles, which brings me to James Harden. He's as supremely gifted a perimeter scorer as we have ever seen. Maybe not so much now at an advanced age, 34 going on 44, doesn't keep himself in great shape, has to play his way into shape. But this man is an offensive savant basketball genius right before your very eyes. Extraordinary skill, but coupled with undercut by loser intangibles. James Harden has loser intangibles, cannot be trusted, cannot be counted on when it matters most. When Kawhi needs him the most, he will not be there for Kawhi. Which brings me to Kawhi's running mate, the other wingman, playoff P, Paul George. Another gifted scorer of the basketball at six feet, eight inches tall. Not the defender he used to be, neither is Kawhi. Age and attrition and injuries. Any regular season night, such as the other night at Denver, Paul George can just go off. He can get it going the way very few humans have ever gotten it going on a basketball floor. He gets that three-point stroke going, and he's just unguardable. But it comes and it goes, and it goes more than it comes. And once the postseason rolls around, it just cannot be trusted He calls himself Playoff P in the third person, I think, to try to convince himself he can be that guy when it counts. But that guy knows in his heart of hearts, no, he's not that guy. And so there's Kawhi surrounded by Russ and James and quote-unquote Playoff P. And Kawhi, who obviously won championships with the Spurs, and then going solo in Toronto. I think he knows in his heart of hearts, this season ultimately will be doomed. I think he knows in his heart of hearts, he will not be back with the Clippers next year. Allow me a quick aside here. This is just me talking about me. Forgive me, 
I want to tell you about my fandom. My love for the Dallas Cowboys is a very public thing because I talk about it every day on television. But I came late to that party. I was 10 years of age when I discovered the Dallas Cowboys while attending a game to watch the team I thought I loved, the team we got on television every Sunday in Oklahoma City, the then St. Louis Cardinals featuring quarterback Jim Hart. I went to see them play the Cowboys in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl, and I was smitten, I was starstruck by the stars on the side of the Cowboy helmets and on their shoulder pads back in those days. But I came a little late to the party because I was already 10 years of age. I was born into rooting for the team that plays just up the road from Oklahoma City, where I grew up, in Norman, Oklahoma, a team called the Oklahoma Sooners. My Sooner love is a very private thing to me. I talk about it occasionally, but only occasionally. I tweet about it occasionally. But I was born into it only because It was all around me. I couldn't help it. My grandfather had season tickets. My parents weren't sports fans, but my grandfather, and I had many cousins above me on the pecking order, always took one cousin to an Oklahoma game in Norman. And I've told you this story before. I just happened to go at age five to a game none of my older relatives wanted to attend. It was Notre Dame coming to Norman. The Fighting Irish had just lost badly at Navy. They were, I think it was 18-point dogs at Norman against a team that had won 47 straight games. 47 straight games. I was steeped. I got born into this. And that day, Sitting with my grandfather at age five, I endured the first loss in 47 games at home, seven to nothing to the fighting Irish. It was a long and silent ride home. So my point to you is, just for a little background, my heart belongs to the Cowboys, but my soul, my soul belongs to my Sooners. And I'll tell you why. So many of my friends I grew up with stayed in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Tulsa. They never left the confines, except maybe on vacation, while I went away to Vanderbilt, Nashville, Tennessee. Summers during college, I worked in New York and in Chicago. I got to see it from the outside in and got to feel what much of the rest of the country felt about Oklahoma. I could tell that people looked down their noses at me when I said, oh, I'm from Oklahoma City. You are? Like you're from the backwoods? You're a hick from the sticks? And you can say, I make too much of this. This is 
way before my time, but I'll tell you what happened and I'll tell you why the Sooners are the Sooners. 1939, there was a movie made. It was a great year for movies, Wizard of Oz. But in 1939, a movie was made off one of the greatest books ever written as far as the writing went. Maybe not the content, but the writing. That movie was The Grapes of Wrath. Henry Fonda won the Academy Award. for playing the protagonist of that book, of the Jode family, Oklahoma sharecroppers, who had fled the Dust Bowl in the state of Oklahoma for Valhalla out in California, out here where I sit right now, working in the orange groves. It's a very sad story because Thousands and thousands fled the Dust Bowl from not only just Oklahoma, but from Kansas and Colorado and Texas. The Dust Bowl being flatlands where when the wind blew, it blew the topsoil away and your crops would fail. And once crops started failing, everybody loaded up their jalopies and drove like the Beverly Hillbillies to the promised land of California because so many handbills posted on poles, buildings in the Dust Bowl area said, come to California, nothing but jobs. And there weren't enough jobs to go around. So it became a tragedy of thousands and thousands of people with no job. And yet, that book painted my home state of Oklahoma as incredibly backward and low rent. Okies, they were called, derisively. And when I first read the book by John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath, it struck me immediately, wait, he's putting the, the Jode family in Salisaw, which is way eastern Oklahoma, over by the Arkansas border. What? That's all hilly, foresty. That, that's not the Dust Bowl. The Dust Bowl was out in the panhandle of Oklahoma, in the panhandle of Texas, and a corner of Colorado, and a corner of Kansas. That was the Dust Bowl. So... I read Steinbeck admitted that he'd never really been to Oklahoma. He just drove through it on old Route 66 once upon a time, just passed through, didn't really stop except for gas. So he fictionalized how backward the state of Oklahoma was in Salisaw as opposed to out in the panhandle. And I still get angry when I think about it because it stained the reputation of my state. It stained it so bad when the movie came out that following the end of World War II in 1945, about five-ish years later, the Board of Regents at the University of Oklahoma met 
and tried to figure out how could they fight this tarnished image courtesy of the grapes of wrath? How could they fight back? And they concluded, well, let's go try to put together the best team money can buy. And they broke a lot of rules, as a lot of people did, but especially in those days, they developed what was called a slush fund. And as soldiers with college eligibility and pro football talent returned from the war, Oklahoma said, have we got a deal for you? Have we got a coach for you in Bud Wilkinson? Have we got a winning streak? 47 straight games came out of the grapes of wrath. So I, I learned early on when I was a little kid, if we took a vacation, we didn't go far. We just drove, didn't have a lot of money. But if we drove to New Orleans, San Antonio, Houston, St. Louis, as soon as somebody there would ask, where are you guys from? And you said, Oklahoma. Everybody always said, Sooners. Yep. Sooners. We got our Sooners. They cleansed our reputation. They brightened our future. The Sooners saved our reputation. The Sooners. So I was steeped in that, and it, it's in my soul because it's our calling card. It's what we're best known for, even though, in a shock to me, along came the Thunder, an NBA team. I never thought my city would ever have an NBA team, and I'm still not sure how it has one, but it does. God bless us. The Thunder obviously began to rival the Sooners' national attention and probably eclipse just because it is the NBA, a professional league, as opposed to just college football. But still... Trust me on this, I live and I die for my Sooners in ways I don't live and die for my Cowboys. It's just different when my Sooners lose. It's different when they win. I can barely tolerate losing a Cowboy game. I suffer, as my wife will tell you, because she suffered a lot of ruined Saturday nights after Sooner losses. I could barely make it through a year ago with our new coach, Brent Venables, after stinking Lincoln Riley fled under the cover of darkness to Hollywood and USC. I kept telling you, this coordinator's terrible. Defense is an afterthought, and now that coordinator, the Grinch who stole football at Oklahoma, is no more at USC. I told you so. But here came Brent Venables, whose calling card was defense, former coordinator, obviously, for my Sooners, and then for Clemson. Good man. Great interview. CEO. And we had the worst Power 5 defense a year ago of anybody in the country. We had the worst defense in the country. Our, Our defense was worse than USC's defense. I could not believe it or tolerate it. We went six and six a year ago because the cupboard was bare, thanks to Stinkin' Lincoln. He knew to get out while the getting was good. So, what did Lincoln? I mean, what did um, Brent Venables do in the wake of Lincoln? 
He went Colorado. He went Dion. He dived into that transfer portal. There's some deep pockets, some oil-rich deep pockets there. I'm sure we pay as much money as just about anybody. And we restocked our defense on the fly, but it's on the fly just like Colorado. You can restock some starters, but you can't restock enough depth. When we beat Texas this year, it was the single most satisfying Oklahoma victory of my life because I hate Texas. I grew up hating Texas, University of. We lost to them a year ago, 49 to nothing. And we turned around and went Dion, Colorado on Texas. We beat them at the buzzer, 34 to 30, most satisfying Oklahoma win ever after 49 to nothing. And then we turned right around because in that Texas game, we lost a transfer from, of all places, Michigan, Andrell Anthony. Stud receiver, trust me, he'll play on Sundays. He was changing life at Oklahoma as our number one CD lamb of a receiver. And he went down late in the Texas game. That was that. We go to Kansas, we lose our best running back, Tawi Walker. He'd been in the doghouse. I don't know what happened. We lost our best. Defensive player Danny Stutzman, and we lost the game to Kansas 38-33 to when I thought, playoffs, here we come. Take that stinking Lincoln. And we turned right around and went to Oklahoma State for the final edition of Bedlam against our in-state rivals, and we lost again. Bob Stoops' son, Drake, got tackled in the end zone. It was Blatant pass interference would have changed the game, but we lost 27 to 24. I couldn't speak the rest of the night. I take it very deeply personally. But we did bounce back last Saturday. We beat West Virginia 59 to 20. Dylan Gabriel, who I thought had a great shot at the Heisman, had two bad games at Kansas and Oklahoma State, bounced back with eight touchdowns, five passing, three rushing. He is really good. But we're out. And it just kills my soul. And I just want you to know that very quietly, Heart of hearts, soul of souls. I'm a Sooner fan. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real Steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This is Vince from Minneapolis. Do you agree with Lil Wayne that the Lakers need to part with AD as in Anthony Davis to win a title this year? Wayne shocked me last Friday on Undisputed. He's on with us every Friday, last half hour of the show. He told me in the commercial break before we started 
that he had a strong opinion about AD. Wayne's a diehard Lakers fan, you should probably know. He said he's done with him, that they got no chance unless they get rid of him now at this trade deadline. Obviously, it would help if you brought in high quality in return. But I said, do you want to say that? Yep, I'll say that. So I had to kind of tee him up when we came out of break, and he said that. So do I agree with him? No, Vince, I can't because (laughs) I stumbled out onto the end of the limb and I picked the Lakers to win it all because I think Rob Palenka has worked wonders with this, this whole roster. And by the way, Jared Vanderbilt, best name in all of the NBA, last name. He still hasn't played yet. I love this roster. I like the way it's built around LeBron and around Anthony Davis. So because I picked them, my only hope is that you get the best of Anthony instead of the weakest of Anthony. But he has turned into, I'm not exaggerating, the single most frustrating player I've ever tried to figure out from day to day, night to night. Single most frustrating. We talk all the time on the show. Does he have that dog in him? Well, I occasionally see or hear a little bark. Just little barks. Just little bark. You know, those little ones, if you have a dog. Hazel, our little Maltese, when she wants to go outside, pee, she just lets me know with a little bark. I I hear little barks from AD, but just only little ones. Killer instinct, as Richard Sherman calls it, KI. I see glimpses and flashes, fits and starts, but deep down, KI, nope. Motor run hot, nope. It mostly runs slow and cold. I can't figure him out. Sometimes his button is pushed. Sometimes it's not. Remember last year, Darvin Ham, his first year coaching the Lakers, said he he tried to call Anthony a new name, called him Wilt Davis. Wilt Davis, how you doing today? How you doing tonight? How, How do you feel? Wilt, trying to inspire him to go back and look at the numbers that were posted by one Wilt Chamberlain at seven feet, one inch tall, called the Big Dipper. Wilt averaged for his career 30 points and 23 rebounds. He was the all-time stat machine. 1961, he averaged 38 points and 27 rebounds. 1962, Wilt Chamberlain averaged 50 points a game and 26 rebounds while playing a league-best 49 minutes a game. 49 minutes a game. Hmm. Played every game, every minute. Game's a little longer. But my point is, 50 and 26? So Darwin tried to inspire Anthony by calling him Wilt. And yet the irony of that to me is that Wilt's before my time, but I heard a lot about him. 
He was just a seven foot one inch Russell Westbrook, a stat machine without winners intangibles. Bill Russell owned Wilt Chamberlain, and Bill was six feet nine inches tall to seven one, and he owned him. Every time they played big series, big games, Bill would outfox him, outsmart him, out hustle him, outthink him, out basketball him, beat him like a drum. So it's a little bit of a backhand compliment that Darwin's calling Anthony Wilt. But you get the drift. He just wants him to play. The one thing about Wilt was he just played and played and played. He was always available. Start to finish every game. He just says, I don't want to go sell. I want to play. I never know when AD is going to be available. I call him always disappearing. Sometimes I call him always disappointing because I was going to say when you least expect it, but it's actually kind of when you most expect it. He's got this little injury or that little injury or he's sick or he's something he doesn't want to play. He's out. He's out. He's out again. He's out of touch with fans. That drives them out of their minds because they reach to trust and he's always disappearing. Anthony Davis is the all-time damned if you do or damned if you don't player. You hang on to him, damned if you do. You let him go, you're damned if you don't have him. But right now, Vince, I'm sorry, I feel like I'd be damned if I don't have him. So I have to close my eyes and hang in and hang on and hope that he shows up and sometimes shows out and occasionally, little bark, little bark. I'm going to give you a real quick two cents from a distance on Taylor Swift. I don't know that much about Taylor Swift. I don't know her music. I don't care. I'm just giving you my two cents from a distance. I sincerely hope her relationship with Travis Kelsey is real for both their sakes, but especially for his. I believe from a distance that his feelings for her are very real. But hers for him, I have no idea. How can you know? How can even he be sure? Because she is such a megastar. Obviously, she is extremely image conscious. She is just painfully camera aware. And so she's always in danger in her life of of acting a part when she knows she's on camera. And she knows she's on camera every single second. She's up in a stadium box watching her Travis do what he does best, which is play football. I'm sorry, but when she's up in the box, she comes off as stagey and fake to me. I just don't buy it. My radar detector is saying, nope, nope, nope. Saw that clip of her at her Argentina concert. Travis on his bye week flew down. She obviously knew she was on camera. You see her running toward Travis all but jumping in his arms. 
embracing him, give him a big exaggerated kiss, big welcome to Argentina. I don't know, it just seemed a little scripted to me. Just a little put on, just, just a little fake. I could be wrong. But is she using this all-time fairy tale romance to plug into NFL-sized publicity and promotion? I hope not. But I do wonder. Final question is from Robert from Evanston, as in Illinois, as in Northwestern. Robert asks, what number would you wear on a jersey customized just for you? Interesting question. Never thought of that. Hmm. I can't tell you my favorite number because I have used it on a couple of my passwords, so I will withhold evidence there. I've always been a fan of numerology, so... I have to be a fan of the number eight. It's sort of the circle of life number, eternal life number. Obviously a fan of 33. It can stand for Jesus Christ. Jesus did live until he was 33. So I honor that number. But weirdly, I've looked back at some of the pictures lately. I don't know how or why, but in high school basketball at Northwest Classen High School in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, way back when, way back before I knew of any Michael Jordan or any LeBron James, I was assigned to wear on game nights, number 23. I didn't really like 23. I didn't like the way it looked. But I didn't have any choice. That's what they gave me, so that's what I wore. I wasn't good enough to demand another number because I don't think really, even though we were often ranked number one in the state, I don't think anybody was good enough to demand anything on a team run with an iron fist by the great Don Van Poole. But I got 23, maybe fittingly, maybe fatefully. So in the end, if you customized a jersey for me, I would want 23 on it in honor of the 23, the original 23, the only 23, the Chicago 23, the goat, not the phony goat. That's it for episode 89. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember undisputed is every weekday, 930 Eastern to noon Eastern on FS1, the Skip Bayless Show, every week.